Welcome in to Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman, and this is an episode unlike any other we have ever had. It is my pleasure to welcome on today Courtney Emerson, author of the new book, After You Vote, A Woman's Guide to Making an Impact from Town Hall to Capitol Hill. Courtney's got a long history working in the public sector, uh, whether it be as a consultant or as the co-founder of an amazing organization called All In Together, Women Leading Change. She spent her life studying how there are discrepancies in politics and in ways that we can correct those specifically when it comes to women's involvement in our political system. And the reason this episode is unlike any other that I've ever had is because the conversation is going to be in two parts. Um, Courtney and I talked and as we started just talking, we literally we're like, okay, we need to start the actual podcast. So um, we dove right in and had a great almost 45-minute conversation. And then as we were wrapping up the Zoom call after I had technically stopped recording or we had technically ended the podcast, we just kept talking. And we we she goes, oh, man, I, I wish I had said this on the podcast. And luckily, um, the way technology works, although I had stopped the recording in Audition, uh, my audio program, the Zoom was still recording. And so uh, she gave this amazing answer and more clarity on some of the things that we've been talking about and, and more ways that people can make a difference. We, we just kept talking and I was like, Hey, actually the zoom is still recording. So is it cool if we, we throw that in and she's like, yeah, that, that sounds great. And so what you'll hear is kind of a self-contained 42 or so minutes of conversation. And then, uh, I will, be like, all right, here's the part where we pick back up. Um, so it'll be kind of obvious, but um, I, I really like the the conversation we had with intent for the podcast, I think was really good and really informative, but I absolutely loved that last 10 minutes or so. So make sure you stick around through the end of the podcast for that. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Courtney Emerson, co-founder of All In Together and author of the new book, After You Vote, A Woman's Guide to Making an Impact, from Town Hall to Capitol Hill. All right, Courtney, before we have the entire conversation we want to have on the podcast, before we start recording, let's go on this podcast. Uh, so the book is called After You Vote, and it explores exactly that. And people that have been listening to this podcast uh, have, have known this is a question I've been trying to answer. You know, we had Juliet Beckstrand on from Vote Save America on to talk about this um, before the election. We had uh, Brian Sims, who's a representative in Pennsylvania, to talk about this on like the state level. And, and Greg Pinello, a Democratic strategist. So like, I've had all these different people on, but like you've really dove into the question of what it means to now like be engaged civically after this massive election democrats take the house the presidency the senate like when you like i guess on the book side of it like when did you start writing the book was it i'm guessing it was before the election and like why did you want to explore this question and then we can just have a conversation about how we've both thought about this uh, that sounds great. And Craig, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is something obviously I love thinking about and talking about. So really um, have been looking forward to this conversation. So I actually started the proposal for this book three years ago. So this oh, wow. has been a long time in the making. Um, and, you know, and, and I'll share a bit of, of background about me and how we got to this point and, um, and what really motivated me to, to write it. So 
early in my career, I worked at a think tank called the Center for Talent Innovation um, and was working with corporations really on diversity, equity, and inclusion topics. So working with companies around the world, thinking about how do we create more inclusive cultures, companies, so everyone's really got a fair shot at advancement um, and is able to bring their full selves to work. And I, uh, it was back in 2014, so this is about the time that Sheryl Sandberg came out with Lean In, and so the conversation about women's leadership specifically um, in the private sector really exploded, and I had this moment where I was like, we're talking so much about this one sector, about corporate, enga- corporate leadership and private sector leadership. Where is the conversation around public engagement, women's participation in political and civic life, and kind of looked around and realized that folks weren't having that conversation. And I was a politics major in college actually as well. And I realized that I wasn't really thinking about this in a meaningful way either. And so I started digging into the data and into the research and realized that, you know, the numbers are really, really bleak. Um, The United States is actually 86th in the world when it comes to political uh, equality for women. And so we're doing just, just terribly. And then on an individual level, you know, although women have actually been voting at higher rates since the 1980s, are less likely to engage in a number of other political activities from speaking about politics to trying to influence others. And actually women are three times more likely than men to say that they don't know enough about political issues to get involved politically. And so it's kind of this analysis paralysis. I'm not enough of an expert to participate. Um, I want to know more. And obviously all of those things are really, really great inclinations. And we should know more and we should understand how our process works and what we can but do. But also just, you know, have the confidence of a white man and just do it anyway, <laughs> right? Exactly. <sighs> so, but, and, and remembering that actually our lived experiences are enough to be effective advocates on behalf right. of the issues that we care about. And so um, part of this was me as the kind of ultimate guinea pig and not feeling like I had the resources I wanted to participate, but also looking at the data and the research and realizing that I was not the only one. And, and certainly research is a generalization and women are not a monolith, but overwhelmingly that's what the statistics tell us. And so feeling like, how do we both, how do I create something that is both a, um, uh, enough of a primer so that women feel like they have enough information to feel comfortable getting active, but also kind of a reminder to say, hey, we as we are can show up and have influence and impact in our communities on behalf of the issues we care about. Okay. So I'm going to go back about 20 seconds when you said that <laughs> yeah. you personally did not feel like you had the tools you're an Ivy League educated politics major. Why do you think you felt that way? It's it's a good question. And frankly, I think that this is the, it's a question to ask our entire generation of women who are responding that they don't feel how they have enough information. This is the most educated generation of women in American history. Information is at our fingertips all the time. Like we don't need to memorize this stuff. Actually, we can Google search it. We can look it up really quickly. Um, I think it was actually just a... Um, a a result of not having been part of the political or civic engagement in a meaningful way. And so not seeing how easy it was, how accessible it was that, you know, my voice as it is and my experiences as they are, are enough to really participate. And I think that, you know, we see, especially in this past election, um, the extent to which we have a civics crisis in our country, you know, folks really don't understand how elections work, um, what a safe and fair and free election looks like, you know, actually three quarters of Americans don't 
aren't even able to name one of their U.S. senators. And so this is something that isn't just, you know, for, for women, it's something for all of us as Americans to think about how are we engaging in our political process? How are we understanding who represents us? The tools that we have at our disposal to influence those that represent us, because remember, we can hire or fire them mm-hmm. um, based on the job that they're doing. And so it's a good question. I think that there is this kind of... Um, perfectionist aspect to all of this too, to say, I want to know everything about, um, about this issue, about how to get involved before I participate, because I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to look stupid. I want to be able to really show up in the best way. And that is a wonderful instinct, but I think to the extent that it prevents engagement at all, it's a, it's a big problem. There's so many different avenues we could go down here because (laughs) I also like, I start to think about how bad faith actors have exploited that right? Like you look yeah. at what Josh Hawley did with the election results and citing this, you know, claiming that the process in Pennsylvania wasn't on the level. And it's like, you're a lawmaker. And by the way, you clerked in the Supreme Court. I'm pretty sure you know how laws work. And like, so a new one was passed, which means the old one doesn't matter anymore. And that's how laws work, Senator mm-hmm. Hawley. Um, so like there, there's that element too, where if you, if you strip it back on a basic level, the things you're talking about, the fact that there is a lack of civics understanding in this country is being exploited by the people in charge uh, to push, I mean, conspiracy theories, lies, all kinds of different things. Um, But then there's also just the much more basic level of like, okay, you're probably tackling that. That might be like step five, but like on step one, how do you think about tackling that problem of, and and even before that, like, how did we arrive here? I I guess it's probably a good, an even better place to start. Like, what are, what do you think are some of the contributing factors of the decline or what, is it not even a decline, just the, the historical lack of education in that area, specifically for women, but overall in in America? Oh my gosh. There's so much good stuff to dig into (laughs) what you just teed up. Um, so this is now a seven-part podcast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Here we go. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is, when was the last time you had any kind of formal civics education? And the answer is probably like eighth grade, maybe. Yeah. And that's so far before when you're actually voting or really meaningfully participating in the political process. Right. And the thing, um, too, about that, I'll just a real quick yeah, note yeah. is, I don't think that this, like, I think that is so basic that it actually contributes to the problem. Like, I think Americans would be better off not taking the government class that we were given, at least in, in South Carolina, public totally. education system, like the, the idealist non-reality version of civics that we are handed in high school or middle school is so misleading that it allows for some of the things that I was just talking about and would actually be helpful for us to just figure it out on our own. Totally. I a hundred percent, um, with you. And actually one of the, um, when I had this realization around kind of the the real gaps in political participation, especially on the part of women, but again, as you just said, this is really true for everyone. Um, I co-founded a nonprofit called the All In Together Campaign, which works to close gender gaps in political and civic engagement, but primarily through education. And so we went to companies, we went to, um, you know, sessions that were hosted in people's homes to really give folks an overview of civics and not just at the federal level, at the state and local level to say, you know, how do you understand how the process is set up, how you can operate within it, where you can really have impact. Um, and I think that was, it was a real eye opener for a lot of folks and was a major impetus for writing the book as well, because folks said like, this is just contained to 
people in this room, how do we make sure this is, um, this is accessible and um, folks are able to really learn this stuff outside of this, this conversation. And, you know, I think that um, there is so much noise at the federal level. And part of this is the information we get, right? I mean, when we talk about staying informed or reading the New York Times or reading the Washington Post, like fill in the blank, these are national news sources. Um, and in fact, 65% of Americans live in counties where there is either one local newspaper or no local newspaper. And so local news, and that's a whole other thing we could get into, but yeah. there's a real dearth of information when it comes to local news, understanding of what's happening kind of in your community at the state level. And I think that that has kind of skewed folks' perception that what is happening in politics at the federal level is the most important. And that could not be further from the truth. What is happening locally in our city councils, at our county, what is happening at the state level in our state legislatures, um, what our governors are doing have way more impact often on our day-to-day lives than we understand, um, partially because we're um, we are not getting that information because it's not easy to get, but also because, um, and this is a, a phrase I'll borrow from uh, Professor Etan Hirsch, um, because of the rise of what we call political hobbyism. So when people think they're doing politics, what that often means these days is I'm reading the news, I'm being an amateur pundit on Twitter, I'm Guilty. partisan cheerleading, whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be, right? But that's not really doing politics and how he would define it as doing politics is working with a group of other people to achieve a goal using a set of strategies to achieve that goal in order to influence the government to do something that they might not otherwise do. And if we're really honest with ourselves about how many of us are doing that way of doing politics, the answer is probably a lot fewer than those of us who think, well, I'm informed and that's important. And it's like, well, what information are you really using to be informed? And is it the stuff that actually allows you to take action and have influence on behalf of the issues you care about? Or does it just make me feel good because I feel like I know what's happening and I can you know, trade headlines with someone else who's also informed of what's happening and that makes me feel like I'm participating, but actually it may not be the kind of participation that we're, we, we need to see. So, Yeah, and which leads directly into uh, what we're supposed to be doing to achieve that, which is, you know, kind of the point of the book. It, by the title, at least it seems <laughs> anyway. So what is like, a good entry ramp, do you think, for people who like, I, I guess there would be two points on the highway where I, I'm con- or not concerned, where I'm interested in people entering. One is if you are the exact person you just described, right? Which to a point, like I'm guilty of. Um, I try to do a little bit more, but like, do I always succeed? Not if I'm being honest with myself. Um, you know, someone who's paying attention to national politics, maybe even a little bit to state local politics, um, but is informed, generally knows what's going on, but needs to and wants to do more. And then also someone who is maybe behind that, who has that information gap, but is seeking to, to do more. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one I've obviously thought a lot about over the course of writing this thought, book. You decided um, to write a book about it. So I, I think you probably put a little bit of thought into it. And I think that the, the short answer is that there are a lot of different ways to engage and to have meaningful influence Um on the issues you care about and improving your community, your state, you know, whatever, whatever level you're focused on. I think three things. The first is prioritizing your issues. And I think this is something that we kind of inherently react against because there are so many things that we care about. There's so much we want to see improved, especially over the past four years, right, where everything has just felt like it's on fire and you want to be able to address and solve everything because it's, it's terrifying. Um, I, 
given that, and we can talk about this in a minute, the most effective tactics to engage your elected officials and to have influence are those that require the most time and energy really at a certain point have to prioritize um, the issues that you're going to focus on. And you can always change the issues you prioritize. You can expand your repertoire as you kind of build your civics muscle. But I think it is really important to get clear on the you know one, two, three issues that you really want to move the needle on. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is using a really simple framework of saying, what am I passionate about? what is urgent, and this can be urgency because there's a bill coming up on it or because it's affecting your community in a meaningful way and no politician or elected official is talking about it, and where do you have experience or expertise? So how has this affected you? How has this affected your community? Maybe you studied it or thought about it in school. And, you know, maybe professionally you do something. If you're a doctor, for instance, right, that's an area that you know a lot about. Um, partially as a way because you kind of have this unique perspective on this issue, but also as a way to sustain engagement because this is really a marathon. It is not a sprint. And so thinking about ways that tapping into the issues that you really are passionate about is going to keep you kind of sustained and engaged and speaking authentically, you know, and passionately on, on behalf of an issue. Um, so I think that's, that's one. The second piece is knowing what your political structure and system looks like where you live. And so, you know, different, um, town or city governments can look very different depending on where you live. Do you have a mayor? Do you have a city council? Who are those people? What motivates them? What are they interested in? County level government. Um, and then at the state level, you know, your state legislature, your state house, your state senate, your governor, um, how do all these bodies kind of work and how are they, how are they, um, set up. And so, you know, there's so many different structures and rules when it comes to especially more local levels of government. They determine for themselves how they're set up, but they're they're so, so, so important in ways that are really huge. Um, Nevada, for instance, this past year just passed a um, a law that reinstated voting rights for former felons um, immediately after they were released from prison, whereas before it was a two-year wait. I think it Reenfranchise something like 77,000 voters in the, 20, in the 2020 election um, to the smaller things, which are school textbooks. Often committees that are determined at the state level are determining the panels that review textbooks, you know, social studies textbooks that students are looking at. The New York Times last year did a, an analysis of Texas versus California textbooks. And guess what? They are different in subtle ways, but ways that will probably reflect some familiar partisan divides. Um, and so really knowing who you're rep who represents you, um, because also reaching out to an elected official that doesn't represent you, unfortunately, they are just not going to either be able to do much or care because they care mostly about what their constituents think and what their constituents are looking for. And then I think the third piece is understanding, again, what these tactics are that are most effective. Tweeting, signing an online petition, Unfortunately, those are the easiest things to do, and they are the least effective things to do, often because they are not personal. Um, often, an uh, elected official cannot confirm that you are a constituent of theirs, and so, again, don't know if to care or, you know, what to, what to do about that. So, in-person visits, um, you know, letters, calls, emails, all of these that are, include your personal story, what the impact on the district is going to be, you know, why this matters to you, what you actually want them to to do about it are all really important things. But as you said earlier, you know, these are all things that take up more time. And so being selective about the issues that you care about um, is, is super important. So the prioritization piece uh, is one that I've thought about, and it can be a little overwhelming because I think the deeper I dove into multiple issues, the more I realized that they're interconnected. And so as you learn about, you know, 
the criminal justice system, you realize that it's heavily related to economic policy, which is heavily related yeah. to drug policy, which is heavily related to, you know, this, that, the other thing. And then there's the giant line of racism that just runs through everything, of course. Sure. Um, so like, how do you recommend someone prioritize and try to, I, I guess, break apart certain issues while obviously acknowledging the reality that a lot of these are interconnected in, in meaningful ways? Yeah, it's a really great question, and I don't know if I have a simple answer to it. I wouldn't it, imagine you would, but I figured I would try. Uh, yeah, if someone um, does, I'd love to. I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah. I think that one piece is, you know, kind of going back to the definition of doing politics that Etan Hirsch mentioned is really working with others, and so working with others in your community to really kind of distill these issues to talk about how you want to engage them. I think working with others is not only again, make engagement more sustainable because it's more it's more fun, it's more energizing, but also makes you more impactful. The larger group of people that you're going to your elected official with to lobby or advocate behalf on behalf of a certain issue is, is going to be more effective, period. But also will give you an opportunity to understand um, how this issue is affecting others in your community, how they see these issues being interconnected. And then I think second piece to that might be to say that finding an opportunity to where that materializes. So these issues might all be connected, but then say there's a, um, a bill coming up or a hearing on a particular bill um, that you can kind of bring some of that complexity and nuance to. You know, often at the state level, uh, hearings on bills are open to the public. Like you can literally go and show up and put your, you know, write your name down. I know this is true in New Hampshire and speak to the elected officials who are considering, you know, how these bills and issues affect different issues, affect different communities. And so I think sharing that perspective and and making sure that that nuance is really understood by our elected officials um, is super important because they're dealing with, you know, so many issues and they are not expert probably on, they are certainly not expert on all of them and neither yeah. is their staff. And so I think that one reframe that is important is realizing that you can actually be as much of a resource to your elected official as they are for you and helping them better understand an issue, understand the complexities of these issues. But, um, uh, and then, you know, making sure that the, the legislation reflects, reflects that complexity. It, as you've done your research and this is, this is a personal question as much as it is like an academic one, but have you found that there's a particular area that you think, you know, cause all, essentially this is all in order of operations, right? If we all have a goal of, you know, whatever, you know, an equitable world, right. Then there's an order in which things probably need to happen or mm. to, in order to, to achieve equity and equality in the most expedient way possible while also understanding expedient is a very relative term. Um, <laughs> Like as you've thought about these these things, is there an area that you think needs to be addressed first uh, in a meaningful way before we can maybe unlock some of the other interconnected issues? Yes, it's a great question, and one thing I've been thinking about a lot um, over the past few few years is, and I'll, I, I promise I'll get to your question about the issues I think are really important, um, and that I've, I spend my time thinking about and advocating for, mm-hmm. um, is that the pop. The personal really is political, and I know that's a bit of a cliche, um, but it can it can be true in the most subtle of ways and the most overt of ways. So I was a Division One athlete in college, um, and that completely changed my life. I mean, being an athlete and being a competitor just completely has changed so much of how I think and you know my confidence and my own you know um, my own experiences. 
but I would not have had that opportunity without Title IX. Mm-hmm. And Title IX is legislation, right? It was introduced, um, it was drafted by two women um, representatives. It was advocated for by women who, you know, were really instrumental in shaping and driving that work. And it has affected my life profoundly. And so thinking of legislation as a way to either expand opportunities for folks or could also be used to exclude people from opportunities, I think is really, really important. And there's almost nothing in our lives or opportunities that is not in some way touched by the decisions that are made politically. And so I think that's just one thing to kind of, that I've just spent a lot of time. I think that's like, I I think that's, I mean, it's obviously correct. Um, I'm trying to think of like a a more impactful way to describe it. But like, that's the thing that I think gets lost a lot. And one of the things that I think, you know, when we talk about the civics classes and things not being up to snuff, like that's one of the things that I, I just don't think the average citizen understands is like whether or not you think they that these things affect your lives, they do. And so you're better off being better informed. And I always go back to, um, I can't remember if it was like Socrates or Plato. I think they both like hated the idea of democracy, but like the Greeks invented democracy and some of their best thinkers were like, this is a terrible idea because people are so stupid. (laughs) And, and the idea that you have to have a well-informed citizenry, otherwise the whole thing doesn't work. And you wind up with something like what happened in the last four years where you have a very gullible, uh, you know, citizenry that is open to, a strong man because they make a compelling argument on the surface that doesn't hold up if you understand what actually is going on, understand the issues, understand the policies, understand the impact. And the idea that people can, and this is obviously what I'm really describing as privilege, that people can get by on the fact that day to day, they don't feel it as intensely as other people might um, is exactly how you wind up with so many things being screwed up and backwards and from a a policy standpoint and how a lot of people wind up voting against their own self-interest. Absolutely. I mean, if policy is invisible in your life, that is a sign of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't feel how the, if feel those things really fundamentally. I think that, um, so my, my former colleague had a great way of framing this that I, I think is describes exactly what you're saying, where whether or not you do politics, politics will do you, right? So <laughs> like, that. this is just, uh, really uh, like, you don't really have a choice. It's going to affect you either way. Um, but you have, uh, you do have a choice in how you, you show up and shape the policies and legislation that is going to affect your lives and the lives of those in your community. And um, I think a, a long way of saying too, that the, the issues that I'm really interested in are the very unglamorous, unsexy, like structural stuff mm. that often doesn't get a lot of airtime, but I think um, inhibits all of our voices um, and ability to have impact in our, in, in our democracy. Um, and which unfortunately have, I think, become extremely partisan over the past decade, but I don't think should be partisan. I think things like campaign finance reform, gerrymandering, ranked choice voting, uh, voter access, and you know, fighting voter suppression, all of these things are affecting everyone's ability to, to participate freely um, and to really make sure that you know, they, everyone has equal opportunity to be citizens and, and equal participants in our democracy. No doubt. And I, I'll add this too to the, the privilege conversation before I want to circle back to some of those structural things, because I actually, I agree with you. That would be where my like priority is. Um, and it just, to me, it's, it's like a no brainer, but on the, the privilege point, um, if you think policy is not affecting you, it 
it is, it's just elevating you in ways that you probably don't realize. And it's easy to feel it when it's impacting you negatively. But if say it's slashing the competition you have to compete against for something by structurally wiping out a subset of people, then yeah, that policy is affecting you. It's just in a way that's helping you. And it's on you to realize that and try to fight back against. And, you know, if you're worth, like, if you're scared of someone's taking your job because of affirmative action, it just, you know, you can beat them on the merits. Like that's allowed. Like you don't have to, you don't have to just submit to the fact that you're going to get your job taken by someone else because they were put in a position to compete with you. They're put in a position to compete, not necessarily to just beat you. Um, and if they beat you, that's on you um, as much as anything else. Uh, on the structural side, though, I feel like I've been threatening slash promising a uh, discussion on this podcast for four months on ranked choice voting. So that's one that yes. I, I absolutely love. And so I'll start with this big question, and I'm sure this ranked choice will be a part of your answer. But like, how do we change the the incentive structure so that we are actually fighting for the things that we claim as Americans to believe in? How do we create that system? Oh my gosh, um, that is a very big question. We yeah. could be here for the rest of the week talking about that. I told I you think- it's a seven part podcast. Now <laughs> you didn't believe me. Um, well, I think one thing is making sure that. Um, folks who are excited about being leaders in their community, serving as elected officials, everyone has equal opportunities to be able to do that. And so this comes down to um, campaign contributions and campaign financing. It comes down to, um, you know, I I think that the reason that part of the reason incumbency is so powerful is because it is extremely complicated to figure out the rules of like how to run and how to file for, um, for, for races. I think um, ranked choice voting, which is, you know, research tells us it makes campaigning more civil. It, it incentivizes voters to learn more about all the candidates Um, places where there is ranked choice voting, women and people of color are more likely to win. Um, You know, there's just so many things that, that through structural change, I, I know that's like structural change, um, that help help elevate opportunities for not only more um, more deserving, more diverse, more inclusive opportunities for folks to run and lead in these positions, but also opportunities for vo- for voters to make their their voice heard. Um, the same is true for gerrymandering, right? And this is actually a really important time to be having this conversation because. Um, d- district lines are about to be redrawn because of the the census this year. And so um, making sure that those lines are being drawn in ways that are fair as objectively and unbiased as possible so that elected officials aren't choosing their voters, but voters are choosing their elected officials. And this is where understanding, again, who in your state legislature, because state legislatures are the ones often that decide this, um, is super, super important um, because where there are, we call them trifectas. So at the state level, if you have a governor, um, a state senate, and a state house that is all the same party, that is considered to be a trifecta. Right now, there are I think 13 Democratic trifectas and 23 Republican trifectas in the United States. And that means that if the state legislature is responsible for um, drawing lines, I mean, again, this is not a partisan thing. This is not a Democrat versus Republican thing, Mm -hmm. but you can bet that if they're in control, they're going to draw the lines to their advantage. And so things like having independent commissions or citizens that are involved in that process, I think is super important. Um, And so I could go on. And then, of course, when you come to voting itself, making sure that that is, of course, secure, but not in a way that unfairly restricts folks from showing up and being able to cast their vote. And that's things like automatic voting registration. Uh, It's vote by mail. I mean, we could go through some of the solutions, but I think that those things are all very, very important, even just to get to the fundamental 
place of we can all vote and we can all vote for folks that, you know, are, um, are de- deserving to, to run and, and, and be part of this process. So I guess the, the next step question would be then like, how do we achieve those things? Right. Cause I, I think you did a great job of laying out a lot of the structures that could change and have a big impact. And I think it's pretty easy to connect the dots as to why like ranked choice voting. I, I love it because you have to be palatable. You can't, mm-hmm. it, it eliminates this race to the extremes and not that, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to let that statement go by without saying the extreme right and the, the quote unquote extreme left are two very different and unequivocal extremes right now. But the idea of being, you know, palatable, because you're trying to be someone's second choice, even if you're not their first, is going to eliminate that race um, uh, to polarity that we currently have uh, going in a literal insane way right now. If we, so if we want to see these structural changes, who do we talk to to make them happen? Are these federal changes? Are these state? Are these local? Or does it depend on which one and where you live? Yes. Uh, it depends on which one <laughs> and where you live. And what, you know, I think that... So take something like... Um, Ranked choice voting. Uh, So that is something that actually is utilized today in cities like Oakland and Cambridge. Um, Maine also uses ranked choice voting for their um, federal level representatives. Um, And so that is something that if it was at your city or town level, that your city council would probably decide at your state level that you're, you know, that these are all things that are, are state determined. How you vote is determined by your state. And so reaching out to your U.S. senator on this stuff is probably not going to be that effective. And so you're going to want to advocate for and lobby at the right level, depending on what your ask is. If you're talking about something like gerrymandering, right? So as we just talked about, state legislatures are responsible for, in most cases, and again, this is something where knowing how your own system works is super important because some states actually do have independent commissions that draw lines because they've kind of gone through this process. Um, but I actually feature in my book a woman named Katie Fahey who led a movement in Michigan to mm-hmm. um, to remove partisan gerrymandering from, from you know, so that that process wasn't just done by the state legislatures, but by um, but by a more independent commission. So these are great examples of folks who have actually done this. And so definitely recommend you check folks like her out because they provide these really great blueprints for how to do this. If you're talking about things like the Electoral College, uh, that is at the federal level, obviously would require a constitutional amendment that would need to be ratified by two thirds of the states to change. Um, and so again, really understanding, and this is why being able to focus on a few issues so you can deeply understand that issue, understand who the decision makers are on that issue, and then understand the actions that you can take to influence them on that issue. And by the way, like leveraging organizations that are doing this work, because there are so many great organizers, activists, organiz- you know, that are doing this work across the country. And so where possible, syncing up your efforts, like you don't have to go this alone. It doesn't have to be just you. In fact, that is going to be less effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as much as possible, leveraging that expertise and, and you know, the, um, the, the work that's been done already is, is super, super important. Definitely. I think one of the things that can be frustrating, though, is you watch some of these things play out is the resistance to them and how some, I mean, people in power like being in power. And so I think of what happened in Florida, where you have uh, an amendment, I think it was Amendment 4, uh, where there's restoration of voting rights for uh formerly convicted felons uh, who are now free and then all of a sudden it's hijacked seven ways from Sunday where basically a Republican legislature state legislature in Florida like finds a new way to not give these people their rights which the people of Florida just voted on to say we want to give them this right so how are ways that 
we can approach those kinds of power grabs by public officials uh, and, and eliminate them? I know that's a, a pretty hefty question, but um, I would imagine if, if you're someone who's trying to get involved in this process and you see someone, something like that happen, it'd be really discouraging. So how can we prevent that from happening and how do we not stay, stay or stay, how do we stay encouraged when it does? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the only things you can do is to hold them accountable for voting against, you know, the will of the people. And so that means supporting other candidates that are running against them in the next election, you know, contributing to their campaigns, volunteering for their campaigns, canvassing, phone banking. These are all actually, I mean, I'm an extrovert, so I love all this stuff. And so they're really easy, fun ways to kind of get involved and, and support a candidate, whether you know, through financial resources or through time. Um, and really, you know, do everything you can to to hold them accountable for for doing that. Call them and let them know that you you're a constituent and that you saw how they voted and you disagree. Get your friends to do the same. Um, again, make sure you're contacting your representative and um, because they care most about what their constituents think. Um, and you know, our system is set up to be able to hold folks accountable. I think, as you said earlier, we're in an environment now where uh, you know engaging back bad actors is more complicated. Um, but those are kind of some of the tools that we have as, as, as voters and as citizens to hold our representatives accountable. Yeah. It's frustrating because ultimately the way to get rid of, or the, the way to deal with bad actors is to get rid of them. But yeah. if they are holding the keys to the car that would drive them away, uh, it obviously becomes a lot more difficult. Um, all right. Last thing I, I want to ask you, typically when you get done reading a book, uh, as a reader, you, you have like something that sticks with you. You have something that just is the, the big takeaway, the thing that you can't stop thinking about. What about when you write one? What is the thing that, uh, that as you've put the finishing touches on a book and you did all this research and put all the work into writing it that you're just like, okay, this is the thing that I'm going to remember about this book. Wow. That is a really great question. Um, I think, that writing a book like this, as soon as it's done, there are certain parts that are almost immediately out of date, right? You're like, oh gosh, like I wish I could have addressed that or I wish I could have done this. And um, I think the most important thing is that so much of this should be hopefully evergreen, even though the topical stuff is changing and that the political environment is changing every day. And, um, but that we should be doing politics in the way we've talked about, which is working with others to achieve a goal to influence government and not doing politics, which is doom scrolling on Twitter and getting into arguments on Facebook and social media. Um, you know, that is not doing politics. Staying informed of national level news is not necessarily politics. Not saying that's not important. Those are all fine things to do. But if we really care about creating change in our communities that benefits and creates a more inclusive, more productive, more equitable country, then we need to be engaging a completely different way. We need to be focused on our representatives and what they're doing. We need to be doing the hard work of improving our communities by actually, you know, getting in the weeds and, um, and, and holding our representatives accountable for what we voted them to do. And by the way, that doesn't just mean when you disagree, um, when you agree with them, call their office and say, I thought that was awesome. Like, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. That really like means a lot to me because they, again, want to get feedback both ways. If they are only getting feedback that someone disagrees with the thing that they've done, then they're not going to feel like they have a leg to stand on when, you know, they're, they're justifying their, um, their decisions. And then the last thing I might say is just that we as 
voters have a lot more influence and power than we think, even when it comes to things like the incentives we create for our elected officials. I was listening to something the other day that said, um, in part, small, there, there was some research that found that small dollar donations spiked when the elected official or person running for office did something really dramatic and crazy and insane. And so if we're giving donations when folks are doing that, then we're actually incentivizing behavior that is to behave like really erratically and dramatically and, um, and actually not incentivizing behavior of, hey, let's focus on the issues. Let's actually get stuff done. Um, let's compromise it from where we need to uh, with other folks in government. And so how do, we, how do we think about incentivizing the right behaviors too? Um, I think is super important. I love it. That's great stuff. I really enjoyed this conversation. Okay, we, we'll save the other six parts for another day. Uh, <laughs> Courtney, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and I can't wait to read the book. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we kept talking and Courtney agreed to uh, let our post-conversation, our postscript, if you will, be included in the podcast. This was honestly my favorite part of the conversation. So, uh, continue to enjoy. That's kind of what you were looking for. Is that the conversation? Yeah, you have? yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think that there's just so much, like on a surface level, there's so much that is like, if you're paying the least bit of attention, it feels obvious. Yeah. And um, I just, I don't know, it's hard because sometimes I feel like I'm caught in an echo chamber and you want to escape that echo chamber and you, you're yeah. looking for some other piece of insight and you just keep talking to people and um it, in a way it's like, okay, well, what, what are we all missing? Yeah. Um, but it also, that is set against the reality that there's like this whole other group of people, some acting in bad faith, some genuinely confused as to what reality is that like literally believe the exact opposite on purpose, the exact opposite of everything that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I don't <laughs> you know. know it's a scary, it's a, it's a scary time. Um, and I think that, I think, though, that, like, if I'm honest, like, I think if most people are honest with themselves about feeling like they're engaged and know what's going on, like, and then it'd say, oh, how many meetings have I attended over the past year to really, like, focus on this issue? Or how many times have I actually contacted my represent my representative representative mm -hmm. on an issue? And kind of, like, how have I engaged? And one thing I, wa I, I wish I'd kind of talked about is some of this stuff is easier than we think. Um, I remember in 2017, I like had this New Year's resolution. I was like, I'm going to have a meeting with my city council member. And I remember being super intimidated by that. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say or like how I'm going to do this. In the end, I like found her staffers information on their website. I reached out and said, I'm having a group of women get together. We'd love to learn more about how city government works in New York City. Would she be willing to come talk to us? Staffer's response was, are there any constituents there? I said, yes, I am one of them. So great, let's do a date and time, right? That's like how simple some of this is, especially at the local level, because there's so much less competition for um, attention because everyone's so in a flurry and focus at what's happening federally that these folks actually like want to hear from us because they want to do things that are in line with what their constituents are hoping to do. And even by reaching out, it actually, there's this cool research that shows um, that reaching out to your representative changes their perception of who their constituency is so that everything that they're doing, every decision they're making is kind of unconsciously shaped by this understanding of, oh, my constituents want these types of things, even if you're not necessarily like engaging directly on that issue and every issue every single time. And I think that's super important that if only white men are reaching out on behalf of the things they care about, then they're going to have a very different perspective of who their constituency is 
from you know real what is reality if if we're all not engaged and and, and participating and that's actually something i've asked myself a lot is like Obviously, we all scream on Twitter. We all have, you know, I I have conversations with friends of mine who are engaged and a lot of it's like just making sure you kind of know what's going on. I definitely write my representatives on a pretty regular basis. But like, is that enough? Like, okay, I sent an email. Like, how how much is that really impacting, um, you know, decision making? How much is that really impacting what's going on? And, And like, okay, I'm doing it for my two senators and my house rep, but I can't say I've done it for local with one exception, like during uh, the summer, like um, when DeRay McKesson and his crew did like the eight can't wait campaign. um, I emailed our local police chief and like was able to get the police contract and went through it and was like, okay, um, I, I can see that these things are in there. Like I had to search and like, you know, I'm hitting hitting control F on on the document. (laughs) Like, this is it. okay. Uh, okay. That's the policy. That's good. Check. We got one. Yep. Um, yep. But still it's like trying, like how much are those emails really being impactful? And that, I just don't know um, versus where it feels like so much is, is team is treated like team sports right now. Mm-hmm. Like the Democrats kind of have their set things. And then we have these little stupid mini fights in the party um, with Joe Manchin and <laughs> the Republicans are on their circus clown big, I, I think it's hilarious that they've adopted the big tent phraseology. Um, but it's like, you guys should probably shrink your tent a little bit. Um, this should expand. Like it's it, let's shrink East, West, expand North, South. Um, but you know, the idea that the incentive part of the incentive structure, and this is like, again, this could be part two is like, we have both a supply problem and a demand problem. And I don't think we talk about whichever one you want to consider, I guess the, the, the demand problem enough. Like the fact that the reason Matt Gates exists is because there's a voting block that wants to vote for Matt Gates. And I yeah. don't think we address enough like what it would take to fix the demand problem. Because yeah, we can talk about voting out the crazy people of the world um, and, and trying to make them um, trying to make them play, pay political consequence. But yeah. at the end of the day, like unless we're all going to move to whatever district he represents in Florida or the Georgia 14th that elected Marjorie Taylor green, or like we all move to Wyoming and like, if, if we really make a difference, like let's get a hundred thousand of us to move to Wyoming and, and all of a sudden we could get two more senators. Like unless we're willing to do that, like there is an exchange of ideas and a, a a penetration of this wall of information that needs to happen yeah. so that we're all working with the same set of facts. Because at the end of the day, like I actually think the, the really messed up part is we all actually generally want the same goals. It's just like we want to be able to have a roof over our head. We want to not have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We want, in theory, people want equality. But like what it actually takes to get there, it, what's being sold on one side versus the other is polar opposites. And one is actually, I think, going to achieve the result and the other is obviously not. Totally. I mean, if you think about just like to exact, pulling on what you said about information, 50 years ago, Americans were all watching the same three TV stations, right? right? right. And so they might have disagreed about which side of the issue they were on, but the information was the same. And then now you have kind of like the red feed, blue feed on Facebook, right? And so where people actually aren't even getting the same information anymore. So we're talking past each other because the facts are not shared. We don't actually even have the same understanding of what's going on, compounded by the fact that we don't have, as we talked about, like a clear 
or very strong civics education infrastructure in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, this is something I think about a lot too. I grew up in New Hampshire. I've lived in New York or Washington all of my adult life. And I'm like, gosh, like, what would it mean for me to kind of move back and be in a place where I could have more of an impact? Because one right. thing I like to think about is like, when was the last time you changed your mind and why? Mm-hmm. And if we think about that and we think about influencing people, often we change our minds because someone we trust has presented us with information that we didn't have or is compelling with that information, but that necessitates a baseline of trust that we do not have in the United States today between Democrats and Republicans. This ideological divide has just gotten so extreme and then even within the parties, right, as you were talking about. But how do we, I think a lot about how do we rebuild that trust? And part of me feels that if we had more people engaging at the local, most local level to fix a pothole at the end of the street, right? And that doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, we all want the pothole change. I'll fix, right? Um, Does that help rebuild some trust? Does that kind of put us back in the same spaces where we're having real dialogues about the very tangible things that are facing our community? And that allows us to create a baseline to move kind of up the chain of complexity of challenges and complexity of values and ideas. I mean, I, I don't know much more. I'm not an expert on any of this much smarter people than me have thought about this. But it is something I think about a lot to your point around like having conversations in echo chambers. Like, am I just talking to people who think the same things I do? Um, and, and being honest with myself of like, when did I last change my mind? Like, not recently, probably, I, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's hard to do. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, this is where I wonder, um, and I had a conversation, God, who was I talking about? Oh, the last podcast I did um, was with Jane Coaston, um, who now is with New York Times, okay. um, but used to write for Politico. And she studies, um, not Politico, um, who is she with? A Vox. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, my girlfriend's in the other room. <laughs> um, so uh, she, and she studies like the American right and reports on like right wing everything um, from Mitt Romney to Marjorie Taylor Greene and the people that vote for them. Um, and so I said, like, I, my hypothesis is that impact will matter, that real life impact ultimately, like to go back to the federal level, like if Biden can get people vaccinated and pass stimulus checks and, and do those things and like a democratic, like, and especially like, I actually think the Republicans, at least based off this hypothesis are doing the Democrats a huge favor because I believe the policies are going to work. And if a partisan party line vote of house Democrats, Senate Democrats and Joe Biden's administration pass things that do good in people's lives, like maybe that breaks through. And she's like, probably not. Like the reality is these people are being told in this echo chamber that like it's all lies anyway. And it doesn't matter how much you show them up is up. They're still going to be like, no, Tucker Carlson said it was down and we're back. And and if that's the case, like that, I don't know. Like, I think it is a, a generational problem that starts with better civics lessons in school amongst other things. Like, but again, like, like we we're talking about if, partisans are selecting what is taught in schools like do you really think there's going to be a reckoning on race and a more accurate depiction of what america's history is in schools if the same people that decry the 1619 project as some like racist propaganda are the ones that are designing the textbooks like it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy prophecy that like it's funny because the podcast is called chasing interesting and and it does feel like a chase and i just don't know where the finish line is 
And I think the answer is like on pol- political engagement, there isn't a finish line, right? Like this yeah. stuff, um, it moves forward as much as it moves backwards. And so, you know, you can make progress on an issue only for 20 years later, progress to be chipped away at, right? I mean, mm. you look at abortion rights in the United States and kind of what's happened at a state level ever since Roe v. Wade was passed. I mean, you can make huge leaps and bounds forward and then slowly slide back. And so the job of a, you know, a citizen of an advocate is never really done. Um, I think it's interesting about, you know, the one way to test the hypothesis of democratic policies are more popular with people and will excite people more about democratic candidates is to get rid of the filibuster, right? Like that's one way to test it is to say like, this could have unintended consequences and we're not exactly sure what will happen. I mean, the filibuster is a tool and it is a tool that can be used for good, is a tool that can be used for bad. It's been used for bad in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. Um, but a way to kind of say, you know, put your money where your mouth is, is to get rid of a filibuster that allows a democratic agenda to really be passed, to be put forward, to be implemented, and it's then for no people brainer. to react to that. Yeah. I mean, it, the Senate itself is an undemocratic institution. The filibuster actually makes it a lot worse. Like when you realize that, you know, Democrats obviously support or, or represent 40 million more people than Republicans do in a 50-50 Senate. Um, but it's, it's actually worse than that. There's like, I can't remember. It's like 13 or 14 states that combine. And so that if it's 14 states, it's 28 senators that represent the same number of people as the two from California. So it's like, it's so skewed anyway, that Democrats should just be like, you know what? Like we're, we're taking our majority seriously. Um, But it's also like, you know, on the idea of the the timeline, um, Rachel actually wrote a book in college um, on foreign policy. And like the main crux of it is the idea that it's always us versus them. And so when yeah. we think about like, oh, are we going to be able to solve this? Are we close? Probably not because it's a tale as old as time. Like the history of empires in the world and, and civilizations in the world is the ability of people in power to make an us versus them that doesn't necessarily comport with reality in a way that they can maintain power. And eventually that can come crashing down and you see the falls of, of empires and different civilizations over time. And um in a way that's like, could be what's happening to America right now. Like we had a good run, um, whether you consider it, you know, from 1776 and the founding and America doing pretty well for itself in the world or specifically since World War II. Um, But I think that that is something like keep in mind too, that's kind of depressing is like this us versus them thing isn't new and it's, it's never really been solved. And you'd think that with more information available, it would be easier, but um, the the rapid speed at which the information becomes available and which people are able to, you know, contort the the channels available to to disseminate information um, is actually in some ways probably made it worse. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, even the rise and fall of political parties, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, in the gosh, when was it? The, the Republican Party was the first to sign on to the Equal Rights Amendment agenda. I mean, that like that's how far we've come when it yeah. comes to kind of party values and how parties think about themselves and we tend to have very short memories with all of this stuff right it changes so much and um it is really uh yeah we're we're in quite a spot but um we uh you know one conversation at a time can at least hopefully (laughs) convince folks to be (laughs) a little more interested in civics and how this stuff works and 
Um, you know, I think figuring out how to combat mis and disinformation is like the challenge of our time, especially as that stuff gets more sophisticated. You can have a video that looks exactly like this person. that sounds exactly like yeah. this person talking. I mean, going to have to get a lot better at figuring out how we sort through information. Um, and, you know, we haven't obviously figured this out yet. So yeah. more to a lot more <laughs> Well, and the do. thing is, by the time you design a way to figure it out, it changes. And that's, that's the other thing too, is like, yeah. how do you, how do you design a curriculum around being able to tell the difference in deep fakes and not, I don't know, but hopefully there's some <laughs> smart people time. out there. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully there's some smart people out there that can't. Thanks again to Courtney for coming on. An incredible conversation. And if you would like to check out the book, you can get it at your local bookstore or on Amazon. Again, after you vote, A Woman's Guide to Making an Impact from Town Hall to Capitol Hill. If you want more from Courtney, check her out on Twitter as well, at Courtney Emerson. I'm at Craig Hoffman or on Instagram at Craig underscore Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening. Subscribe. Uh, Next week, actually, one can guarantee there will be an episode and two know the guest foreign policy expert jim goldgeier uh who is just beyond smart his resume if i read the whole thing would take three hours uh so i'll just tell you he's a foreign policy expert uh, has written in foreign affairs and so many other publications uh is a scholar i mean i i can he, he's the rare person who is both truly a gentleman and a scholar. So I'm very much excited to talk to him on the pod about a number of different topics. So make sure you check in for a little bit different conversation next week. Uh, Subscribe and you'll know as soon as that episode goes live. Uh, If you like what you hear, rate and review as well. And as always, if you didn't like it, remember what your mother told you about if you didn't have anything nice to say. Okay, thanks. Uh, My name is Craig Hoffman. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Chasing Interesting.